0: 2019 is coming to a close, and everyone is gearing up for what's going to be the big story of 2020, the election. The field of Democrats eyeing the White House in 2020 keeps growing. And this weekend, the candidates were out all over the country making the case to voters that they're the one who can defeat President Trump and get things done. There's going to be a lot of pundit opinions and talking heads. But as always, we'll be turning to the scholars and the data to figure out what's really going on. There's no better place to start than with the conversation I had earlier this year with Professor Kathy Cohn about the assumptions, surprisingly incorrect assumptions, that we make about how millennials vote and engage in politics. This was an enlightening discussion with information that will be important to keep in mind as we navigate the election. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. This is Big Brains and I'm your host, Paul Rand. Every two years, you start to hear the exact same conversation in the news. Before every single election, we talk about young voters. And we say about young voters, are they extra motivated this year? Are they going to make a difference? We have been talking about this for a long time. Trying to figure out where young voters stand has been a fundamental part of every election since 2008, when millennials were a decisive factor in Obama's historic win. In
1: 2008, he won the youth vote by 66 percent. Though 18 to 29-year-olds made up only a fraction of the electorate, they were crucial to his victory. I think that it's the question of will the youth actually turn out. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama inspired them bigly.
0: Each election, poll after poll, tries to predict if millennials will show up and if they do, how they will vote. But one leading scholar says, the way we've been trying to understand and track millennials is all wrong.
1: There's a narrative out there that in fact, there's this kind of monolithic millennial generation. And in fact, what we found is actually, there's quite a kind of complexity to this generation. And that if we're not paying attention to this generation, we're really going to
0: miss important trends. That's Kathy Cohn. She's a professor in the political sciences department at the University of Chicago.
1: I, I think there's a kind of compelling need to understand the complexities of millennials. And there isn't, sadly to say, there isn't a lot of data out there.
0: So Kathy did what top researchers do. She went out and collected it herself. She spent a decade working with young people with the Black Youth Project, and then in 2016 she launched Gen Forward, a survey of millennials across racially diverse lines.
1: What's pretty amazing to me is when I go out and talk about Gen Forward, people usually say, "Well, why study millennials? Who cares?" You know, and I say, "Well, they're they're really important. Uh, Largest share of the workforce, largest share of eligible voters. They control about I think it's 1.7 trillion in buying power, and." They're also the most racially and ethnically diverse generation that we've ever seen. So this is
0: an important group of people. Critical. From the University of Chicago, this is Big Brains, a podcast about breakthroughs and research that's reshaping our world. On this episode, the myths of millennial voters and the future of our politics. I'm your host, Paul Rand. There's never been a millennial survey quite like Jen Forward. It happens once every two months, so they can track responses over time, and it's widely diverse.
1: We field a survey focused on lots of different issues, but every survey includes a subset of questions on politics. Some surveys focus on something like the future of work. Others focus on technology. We've looked at race and immigration. So a range of issues, and the idea is how do we begin to tell a more nuanced story about how millennials
0: are thinking about the world. But of all the data that Kathy's collected, one thing has stood out to her most.
1: So I'll say the, the kind of narrative of progress and tolerance that we often hear about millennials, right? If we can just wait for millennials to take over, racial issues will go away, I'd say, Clearly, that's not true from our data. And some of that is just reflected even in who they vote for. So, you know, there's an understanding or an expectation that, in fact, all millennials voted for Barack Obama and all millennials voted for Hillary Clinton. That's not true. In 2008, the majority of white millennials voted for Barack Obama. In 2012, the majority of white millennials voted for Mitt Romney. And in fra- Mitt Romney. Yes, yes, and it gets better. And in fact, in 2016, the plurality, right, the largest share of white millennials, voted for um, Donald Trump. So, some of the people who voted for Romney voted for Trump, but there are also new people coming in, younger people coming in, in particular among white male millennials who are now vo- who voted for the first time and voted for Trump. Now, some of that we would argue has to do with their perception of their economic prospects, and some of it clearly has to do also with their uh, views about race and. Racism. There are narratives that they're receiving from lots of different places about their position in society. And in particular, it's funny that we're spending a lot of time talking about white millennials, but that's okay. Uh, In particular for white millennials, I think there is a kind of narrative of loss, right? This idea that in fact, they're losing jobs, they're losing their position. Um, and it resonates with a, a segment of that group who believe, in fact, about 50 percent. We ask this question. Do you believe, in fact, that uh, whites suffer the same levels of discrimination as people of color, in particular blacks? And about 50 percent of white millennials say yes to that question. Right. So there is a sense of loss and a sense of vulnerability that we see in this population that I think um, really pushes back against the narrative of this being a new generation of tolerance and progress. If you go back to Charlottesville. We begin tonight with that breaking news. A
0: horrific scene in Charlottesville, Virginia. A white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence and chaos. The image is just coming in. A car plowing into a crowd of demonstrators protesting against those white nationalists. A 32-year-old woman killed. A number of severe injuries, many life-threatening driver has been taken into custody.
1: Those were young men, young white men with tiki torches, right? And I think oftentimes when we talk about white nationalism, we're thinking about an older generation. We associate it maybe with Jim Crow. And in fact, part of what we're finding, and this is maybe the surprising and disturbing part, is that some of those tendencies, some of those beliefs, some of those kind of feelings of racism can also be found in this generation. And that's what I mean by, if we accept a kind of monolithic narrative about progress that's coming from this, this generation, and we don't understand the kind of differences, the complexities, and the nuances, then we miss the opportunity to intervene and try to change the trajectory.
0: So as you look at this, do you come out with a sense, and maybe this is too ambiguous of a question, with a sense of optimism about the next generation coming in? Or do you say, actually, it's just a continuation of what's been going on? Well,
1: I'm optimistic in the sense of there's going to be demographic change. You know, the fact that young black people can take to the streets and also take to social media, design a hashtag, Black Lives Matter and force the public conversation, discuss the killing of young black people, I think that's powerful, right? Um, And I think that's what the Democratic Project is all about. So I'm optimistic that young people are, in fact, finding their voices, they're building organizations, they're, you know, taking to the streets and also taking to the ballot box. We saw an increase in turnout uh, in 2018 in terms of the midterms for millennials. What we saw are younger members of... Congress, right? Younger members, younger candidates being elected. We saw maybe the mo- most diverse Congress Very elected. Much. We saw, you know, a hundred women as members of a Congress. So I think what we've also seen in our data is that young people are saying we want a different type of representation. Now, the different type of representation operates on multiple levels. One of it is just I want different group of people who seem to look different and maybe behave differently. But I think they're also saying we want the Congress actually to function. And so maybe if we put new people in there, then maybe it functions and maybe it functions on our behalf. So I think, you know, when we think about 2018, I think we see young people kind of mobilizing and being mobilized Uh, especially around new candidates and fresh faces with the possibility of change. And, And when in our data, when we ask them, what's the thing you want? What's the most important characteristic you're looking for in a candidate? They say, we're looking for a candidate who will provide change.
0: Change. It was a key word in Obama's campaign, hope and change. And it's been a rallying cry for young people ever since. So what kind of change are young people looking for in a candidate for 2020? That's coming up after the break. If you're listening to Big Brains, there's a good chance you consider yourself a lifelong learner. However, you may not know about the University of Chicago's Graham School and its focus on continuing liberal and professional studies. For more than a century, Graham has been a destination for lifelong learners. They offer courses online and in the classroom, Bringing the transformative education UChicago is known for to students of all ages. To learn more about the courses, certificates, and degrees, visit graham.uchicago.edu. So I'm running for president, say, <laughs> in 2020. You're not going to win. You're probably right. Thanks <laughs> yeah. for the vote of confidence. No problem. By the way. No problem. <laughs> um, and I'm coming to you saying, I now understand that. This Gen forward generation is the largest, most powerful group that I could possibly be targeting. Absolutely. And if I figured out how to get them on my side, Mm -hmm. I'd have a really good chance of winning. That's right. Help me understand what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. If I said I want to win the millennial vote Mm -hmm. and you're saying, all right, I'm not going to tell you if you believe or don't believe this, Mm -hmm. but if you're going to win, you have to do these things. What do I have to do?
1: Well, first thing I'm going to push back and say there's no millennial vote. You're not going to capture all millennials, so you've got to figure out... What's the majority of millennials that you want to try to capture? And of course... Those who vote. We, well, those... <laughs> that's good. That's good. <laughs> right? But they're going to also be looking for some authenticity. So if you've, for example, been a supporter of President Trump, and now you try to move to a position where uh, you want to court African-American millennials, it's going to be very hard for you. Second thing so I'd I've say... have got to be authentic. You've got to be authentic, but that's always the case with a yes, candidate, is. right? The, the second thing I'd say is... One of the things we've learned from Gen Ford, especially when we look at it through the data, through the filter of race and ethnicity, is that young people from different communities have very different issue priorities. Certainly.
0: And if you had to say, at least today, as we're speaking, the issue you. priorities?
1: Yes, but I'm going to tell you for a fee, for a fee, yes. <laughs> um, so but you for- didn't sell the data. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I don't sell the data. So for African-Americans, we know that for almost two years, when you ask what's the most important issue, it is police brutality and racism. If you ask Latinx young people what's the most important issue, it has almost consistently been immigration issues. For Asian Americans, it moves a bit. Uh, sometimes gun violence, sometimes health care, sometimes education. But we know kind of they tend to be, at least in our sample, a bit more progressive than maybe uh, others would expect, and and immigration doesn't always pop up as the number one issue for Asian American um, millennials. And for whites, it moves all over. It can be homeland security. Sometimes it's education. Sometimes it's healthcare. Uh, it's usually primed by what is the most important issue being talked about at the time. So the first thing I would say to you is, what are your political commitments? And if I understand your political commitments, then I can. Help help you craft a message. So we're gonna figure out what the issues are, but there are also these crises coming up. So for example, young people are worried about the future of work. And a majority of young people, we have found it again in our data say, That if someone's job is taken because of robotics or AI or technology in general, the government has a responsibility, right, to support that person until they can find another job. So I think there are... And that's a worry of this generation. That is a worry of this generation. Probably across the board, I would Absolutely, yes. And so... You know, we'd start to think about what's your response to the future of work. We also know that majorities of young people across race and ethnicity support the idea of free public higher education. So are you prepared to also say, you know what? I think, in fact, everyone deserves uh, a chance to go to college. And so here's my platform on that. So, you know, the first thing I would say is, instead of thinking about how do I win the millennial vote, I'd say, how do I understand millennials? And how do I understand the diversity and the complexity of millennials? And then what do I stand for? And how do I align with Which group of millennials? Actually,
0: it's far more specific than I was expecting when I asked the question. So that was great. (laughs) Okay, okay. Um, I actually now think I have a real shot at winning, even though you don't think that I do. I do not. Okay.
1: (laughs) Capitalism is the engine of prosperity.
0: Actually, it sows the seeds of its own demise.
1: Could both be right? I'm Kate Waldock from Georgetown University,
0: and I'm Luisa Zingales from the University of Chicago.
1: We're the hosts of Capitalism, a podcast about what's working in capitalism today,
0: and most importantly, what isn't.
1: We're going to share this sort of irreverent banter you'd hear between economists at a bar.
0: That is, if economists were to go to a bar.
1: Subscribe to Capitalism. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Can you talk a little bit about this interest in young people? What sparked it, and and was that always along? thing for you, and you knew it, or you said, wait a minute, something happened that really made me think this is a great area to study?
1: Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. You do all this academic work, but it really all starts with family, or the people that you love and the people who are closest to you. My My focus on young people really started with my niece and nephews, right? Watching them kind of move through the world, having kind of holiday dinner conversations with them, and recognizing that they had kind of real insight and analysis. But it it was in particular watching my nephew, I would say, kind of struggle to find his way. You know, I think there's a way in which we expect a kind of almost linear progression from generation to generation. My parents saw it with our generation. Neither one were able to go to college or to graduate from college. Then they had children who were able to go to college. And I think the expectation was that then their grandchildren would, you know, even surpass that. But my nephews, my nephews and niece, encountered a different, I would argue, economic system, public education system. You know, this was a moment of deindustrialization, the absence of what I would call kind of living wage jobs that didn't require a college education. I think he stumbled along the way, had interactions with the criminal justice system, and it was really watching his trajectory right watching the ways in which he was trying to find his way that motivated my interest it motivated my interest in part because as a scholar i know the the structural concerns i know deindustrialization i know the advent and the kind of imposition of mass incarceration i know how neoliberalism has kind of debilitated the safety net but I think it was also that I knew what a beautiful soul he had, right? This was a, he he is what I, of course, consider to be a wonderful young man. And so the question is, how do you tell a complex story about not just the people you love, but young people that allow for all the structural challenges that I just mentioned, but also don't take away their agency? And the fact, I think he would say that at times he made, what might be labeled bad decisions. And really, the work of Gen Ford, the work of the Black Youth Project, is, is trying to not deny but really highlight the humanity and the complex humanity of young people. And to pay attention to the structural challenges that they face, but also the decisions that they make. And to allow us to kind of not only tell a story of deficit, but also to tell a story of assets, to represent them in their full humanity, sometimes glowingly, and sometimes you think, oh my God, what are they doing? But to, you know, but to provide that space and to hopefully provide data that where other people can tell complex stories about young people.
0: And you're going to continue, I'm sure, being sought after for as we get more into the political system. And I've seen your work not only on NBC, but you're quoted in The Washington Post and a number of other places. As election season starts putting into a higher swing, because every day we now have a new candidate for Democratic president teeing themselves up. Mm -hmm. What do you see happening over the next couple year period of time. And if you said, well, the new things that I wanna be surveying on, or that I know we're gonna be curious about, what do you th- what do you think you're gonna be looking at a little bit more as we get into the, the swing of this election cycle?
1: Right, so so part of it is that we're always looking at uh, the political dimensions of how young people are experiencing the world, and what do I mean by that? We have a set of questions, probably a battery of 20, 25 questions that we always ask their relationship to the parties, do they believe the country is going in the right direction? You know, what's the most important issue? Now we'll start to fold in another set of questions, which we'll ask about, you know, who who do you feel like you're supporting? Also, are you paying attention to politics right now? There's, you know, there's one argument that says they're so turned off at this moment, it will be hard to re-engage them. Now, 2018 suggested that that's not true. But it could become a lot when you have, you know, 12 people running for in the Democratic primary to really pay attention and to kind of understand the specifics of who's arguing what. But we'll try to pay attention to, you know, uh, their level of interest, of course, who they're supporting, why they're supporting certain candidates and and not others. How does the representation of women and women of color running for office matter? So, you know, we want to look at 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 that level of analysis. And, you know, I, we want to figure out how young people are going to react to that.
0: Good. Well, we're going to see a lot more of your work. I have every I, feeling coming up. And with, I sure with hope the, so. With the continued Gen forward studies and probably hear a lot about it. I and, sure hope so. And you have so. a good voice on it. So okay. thanks for coming and sharing it with us.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Big Brains is a production of the Chicago Podcast Network. If you like what you heard, please give us a review and a rating. Our show is hosted by Paul M. Rand and produced by me, Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening.